If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. So, uh, back by popular demand, I know many of you have been waiting for us to return to the book of Philippians. And so here we are. We've taken about five weeks off, but I'm excited to return here this morning. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Uh, this morning is where we begin. Uh, that's on page 981 in the Pew Bible in front of you. In fact, if you're visiting with us this morning, you don't have a Bible, uh, we certainly invite you to take that Bible uh, in front of you, that Pew Bible. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word, and so we, uh, we offer that to you this morning. Uh, this is Philippians chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 12. Hear now the Word of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that we can consider. And we ask that you would uh, come and through your spirit that you would help us and bless us and serve us through your word. We want to know Christ we want to know how He works in our life. We want to know how we can follow Him. We want to become more like Him. And I trust that you would be pleased to take your word this morning, ministered by the Holy Spirit, and change lives. And so we ask that you would do that even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. On May 31st in 1792, a sermon was preached that literally changed the world. It has been called the deathless sermon. That is, it is the sermon that never died. Thousands, perhaps even millions, have quoted from it. In fact, I plan to do so this morning. It was preached by a man named William Carey. He was a humble man who uh, grew up in rural England, uh, suffered from skin disease. He was actually uh, allergic to direct sunlight. He became a shoemaker and a poorly educated one at that. But Kerry, instead of dedicating himself to shoemaking, actually would take the leather in which he was supposed to make shoes and he would make globes. And he would uh, put the world on the globe and he would point to parts of the world and talk to people about the world and he would begin to weep as he pointed to places upon the globe which had no access to Christianity, had no access to the gospel or Jesus Christ. Eventually, Kerry would become a Baptist pastor. And he would sacrifice to educate himself. He would even go hungry in order that he could buy books to read. So he's a man after my own heart, without, without a doubt. This man loved to read. In fact, he would go on to teach himself Greek and Hebrew, Dutch, French, and Latin, and several other languages. And when he wasn't reading theology or studying languages, he was captivated by Captain Cook's voyages, giving him a, even a greater heart for the nations and for those who are lost and constantly heartbroken that no one was even trying to reach them, that there was no missionary movement to go to them. In fact, hyper-Calvinism in Carey's day had so overtaken, especially the Baptists in England, five years before he preached his famous sermon, he, he stood up before a group of pastors and pleaded that we would send missionaries to the nations. And an older man, an older pastor said to Carey famously, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Well, Carey wouldn't be dissuaded. 
And some five years later, on May 31st, 1792, he, he preached that famous sermon. Now, he was an unlikely candidate to preach the deathless sermon. In fact, his biographer describes him as slight of stature, prematurely balding and wearing an ill-fitting red wig. Carey made a distinctly unimpressive personal appearance. In fact, he preached for an entire summer of 1785 and did so poorly, the church refused to recommend him for ordination. On one occasion, he gave, according to one hearer, quote, a message as weak and crude as anything ever called a sermon. Um, and so he was um, perhaps not naturally gifted to, to preach. And yet one day he stood up before a group of Baptist pastors and he called them to reach the lost. He called them to send people to the uttermost parts of the world in order that the kingdom may grow, grow, uh, grow and that, that lost may come in. And yet uh, they heard the sermon and the impact was not immediate. They all perhaps nodded politely, but they weren't going to change at all. In fact, as soon as Kerry was done, they all began to gather their things up and and they were off to leave and go back to their home. And it's at this, when Carrie saw all these Baptist pastors leaving uh, unmoved, he began to plead saying, Oh, sirs, is nothing to be done? Is nothing again to be done? And every man had that plea sat back down. And they began to think for the first time in perhaps a thousand years, how can we send out missionaries to reach the lost? Well, they were Baptists, so they formed a committee. (laughs) The committee's name was the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel to the Heathen, which was wisely changed to the Baptist Missionary Society. (laughs) Carey would become their first missionary. Later that year in 1792, he would set sail for India and forever be known as the father of modern missions. So what did he say? In this deathless sermon. The text was Isaiah 54 and verse 2. It says, Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. He had two points. You may have heard them. His first point was to expect great things from God. His second point, attempt great things for God. Of course, Perry was speaking in the context of missions, wasn't he? He was saying, we ought to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God in the context of missions. But I think those points can apply to any endeavor which we set ourselves to in our pursuit of Christ. Can we not equally say in, in, the, in our sanctification in following Christ, we should attempt great things uh, uh, for God and expect great things from God as we go as Christians? In fact, I almost feel like this would be a good outline for us in these simple verses before us, these two verses. In verse 12, Paul, who says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, seems to be inviting us to attempt to do great things for God. And yet, as soon as he does that, he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, in a sense saying that we, that, that we should expect God to do great things in us and through us, expect great things from God. And so I want to consider here, as Paul calls us, to labor in the outworking of our salvation. But before we do, um, I, want to, I just want to pause for a moment and consider, just remind us, what does it mean to be saved? We're, we're going to do a little theology this morning. I hope that's okay. Right? Uh, well, if it's not okay, you're tough, because we're doing it anyways. Right? So, we're, uh, the, the Bible actually presents salvation in, in three different lights. Salvation is 
is, you know, the way we talk about salvation, we, we say like, are you saved or have you been saved or when, you, when were you saved? And, and we refer to this past event and, and that's an appropriate way to talk about salvation. But you know, the Bible, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15 says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. You are being saved. Not something that simply just happened to you in the past, but it's something that is actually happening to you right now. And so we can understand salvation as a past event. Sometimes the Bible refers to this as justification. It means to be declared righteous. That God declares you to be holy. That God looks at you, though you are not righteous, he declares you to be righteous. Romans 5 verse 1 says, we have been justified by faith. And so we stand in Christ's righteousness. This is a past event. If you're a Christian... This happened to you sometime in the past. There was some time and some place in which you bowed your knee to King Jesus as Lord and placed your faith in him and God justified you. He declared you at that time and from that time forward forevermore to be as righteous as Christ. Some of us know when that happened. Some of us know that time in which we bowed our knee to Jesus. Others of us, perhaps raised in a Christian home, not quite sure when that event took place. It doesn't matter whether you know the time of it. God knows the time of it. And it happened sometime in the past. And so we can look at that and say, okay, I was saved. I, I am saved. It was an in- instantaneous event. It's not something that you grew into. It just happened to you. And it was a passive event. There's nothing you did to earn this, to work up to this justification, to credit this justification. You you didn't uh, labor to be declared righteous. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved. Right? That's past tense. This is what happened to you. How? Through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. He says this is God's gift to you. It doesn't come by your works. This is entirely through God's grace. It has nothing to do with human effort. If you want to be saved, you don't work to be saved. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Please understand that when we believe in salvation, Christians believe we need to be saved from God's wrath. We need to be saved from our sin. But it is not something that we work towards. It's something that happens to us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And so it is a passive event. And so we can rightly say, I am saved. If you're a Christian, you could talk about your salvation and say, I am saved. But salvation is not simply just a past event. It's also a present journey. Right? We, are, we have been declared righteous by God. That's the past event. But that just begins a journey in which we are now made righteous. So he declared us righteous in the past, and now we are walking with Jesus. And as we do, we, we grow in our holiness. We grow in our righteousness. We grow in our Christ-likeness. We become more like Jesus. The Bible calls this sanctification. Now, this is a process of being made holy. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for instance, says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see that present, ongoing tense. And so if you're a Christian, you are right now being saved. In fact, I hope it's happening to you this, this very moment. The Bible says, Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. I, my hope and prayer is that we leave this, this room this morning sanctified, that we are closer to Jesus, more in love with God, more committed to turn against sin than we were before we came in. I, I hope that you are being saved today. That is that you are working out your salvation and drawn to him. This sanctification is a progressive event. This happens over your life. This is not instantaneous. You don't have victory over sin instantaneously. It's a battle that you fight. You grow in this area. 
And in, in working out your salvation, in being saved, your works are very important. You're active in this. And so we could say, I, I am saved, past event. Or we could also say, according to the Bible, I am being saved, present journey. But there's one other aspect of salvation. And we could call it a future destination. That salvation is a journey that, that starts in a good, uh, good place in our justification and we keep getting better and we end up in a better place. We end up somewhere. Paul calls it in chapter 3 of verse 14 a prize that he strains towards, this future destination. The Bible calls this glorification. So we have justification, sanctification, and glorification. Look in Hebrews chapter 9. I think it's on the screen for you. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save, future tense, those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so there is a day in the future coming in which Christ will come for you to save you. He's going to save you on that day. That is, he is going to make you just like him. You're going to have complete and utter victory over sin forever. You'll be made like Christ spiritually and physically. And you will have no more sin or temptation or sorrow or sadness or sickness. And on and on you shall go. That day is coming. In fact, that day is closer than it was yesterday. The Bible says in Romans 13, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. By the end of this sermon, you are going to be closer to your salvation than it was when we began. It is coming. We are getting closer. This, this glorification will be an instantaneous event. You will not spend eternity getting better. You will not spend eternity battling sin. One day Christ will come and he will instantly make you like him. He will glorify you and you will just get to spend all of heaven learning to enjoy more and more who God is and what he has done and the people whom he has redeemed. This is something that passively happens to you when you become immediately transformed. And so we can say, I, I am saved and I am being saved. And we can also say, I, I will be saved. You see, salvation is kind of like an expedition. It has a starting point. It has a journey and it has a destination. I wonder, where are you today? Now, if you're here, you're obviously not at the destination. Just for clarity, this is not heaven. As good as this message is, right, um, this is not heaven, right? So we, none of us in this room have made it to where, but most of us are on the journey. Some of us are farther down the road than others. Some of us are just starting. Some of us are maybe may lost right now. I'm not quite sure which direction to go and feel ensnared on this journey. But, but all of us who claim the name of Christ, who are generally converted to Christ, are on this journey. Perhaps there are some here this morning that haven't started. I invite you to begin. I invite you to place your faith in the Son of God who lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin because he wants to give you grace. He wants to give you mercy. Three days later, he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he will return to establish his eternal kingdom. The Bible says, if you bow your knee to him and place your faith in him, you will be saved, both past and even into the future. But Paul's instruction here, now back in verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation. So what's he talking about? Past event? Future destination? No. What he's talking about when he says, work out your own salvation, he's talking about this present journey. He's asking you to let, let your salvation abound. Let there be an outworking of it. In other words, you're not done being saved. There's still victory and salvation over sin to take place. 
And so he invites us to work out our salvation. But interestingly enough, Paul invites us to work out our salvation, not in our own strength, but in God's strength. That yes, we are active in this work, but praise the Lord that we are not alone active, that it is God who's actually energizing our activity, energizing our obedience. And so I simply want to consider, as we look at these two verses, our work and God's work. Our work, according to verse 12, is that we are to work out our salvation. Notice, by the way, there, he does not say, work for your salvation. He does not say, work up your salvation, or even work at your salvation. But work out, he says, your own salvation. That is, Christian, you have been saved, as we just established. That was a past event, and now there should be an outworking of that. There should be evidence of that. You should show that you have been saved by the journey in which you are now on. That that salvation is in some sense this possession that you have and yet is to be explored and enjoyed and delighted in. It's like marriage, perhaps. Marriage is something you have if you're married. It's something that has been given to you, that you've entered, you possess it, and yet you now have a lifetime to explore it and to enjoy it and to develop it and find delight in it as we should and are called to. I think salvation is similar to that. We have been saved, and now he says, okay, you have been saved. Now let, let that work out in your life. Let us see it. Let us explore what that salvation, that relationship with God is actually like. In fact, he gives us a motivation as to why we should work. You see there in verse 12, the very first word is therefore. That's interesting to me. Therefore, now you're going to have to remember back a number of weeks because I think we were last in Philippians in March. But remember, he had just finished describing this this descent, the humiliation of Christ as he went from heaven and took on human flesh. And there as a human, he became a servant. And eventually he served us by dying, even dying upon the cross for our sins. And yet God was, was not pleased to leave him in the grave, but exalted him up and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we considered the gospel, didn't we? The, the humiliation of Christ as he comes to die for us and the exaltation of Christ as he is exalted into heaven and given lordship over all things. It's the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And so Paul says, okay, because Jesus did that, you work out your salvation. Now, what's the connection? How do those two things go together? How does what Christ has done for you through his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, impact you tomorrow morning on how you should work out your salvation? How does the gospel impact you? Well, I think the more we are aware of the gospel, for instance, the more we will appreciate grace that's been given to us. And the more we appreciate grace, it will change how we relate to our mothers, perhaps, or our children, or or how we use our tongue, or how we treat one another. The more I'm aware of the gospel, the more gracious I'm going to want to be with one another. Or the more we're aware of the cost in which Christ has paid to redeem us. Will that not change you? Will that not motivate you to be willing to sacrifice for him or to take risks for him or or actually speak up for him when there may be consequences for that? When you consider what he has done for you, is that not motivating you? Or the more you're aware of God's love for you through Christ's death on the cross for sinners, does that not change how you face hardship and trouble? and trial. When you come into a difficulty and and a a troubling situation, even as Chris has reminded us this morning in his scripture reading, when I think that Christ has died on the cross for my sins, that God loved me so much when I was a rebel, he sent Jesus to die for me. 
Will he therefore withhold anything from me that is for my good? That makes no sense. That's Romans 8.32. He will not. So the gospel is actually going to enable me to work out my salvation in the midst of trial and hardship and difficulty. Somehow we got in the church this tendency to leave the gospel. Like we think the gospel's for salvation, past event. So I have been saved and now I'm going to go move on to bigger and better things. Right? We're going to tackle bigger things. Well, friends, you never leave the gospel. You never leave the death and the, the, the burial and the resurrection of Christ. That is never left behind. That is the power for your salvation in the past, but it is the means by which you are being saved today. I appreciate what one author wrote when he said, the gospel isn't one class among many that you will attend during your lifetime as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. The gospel will give you that power. That will motivate us. And then he tells us the nature of the work. You look in there in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, skip over that parenthetical comment there, work out your own salvation. Right? You always obeyed, so now work out your salvation. So he understands the working out of our salvation is an obedience to Christ. And he, he commends them. He says, you, you obeyed. Um, and then he says, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul is aware that obedience is easier when we're surrounded by Christians, if, especially people we consider to be spiritual leaders. And he's commending them for obeying even when he wasn't nearby. I'm amazed how um, when I interact with people and they speak a certain way, then they find out that I'm a pastor. And then all of a sudden they're speaking in the King James Version, right? Everything changes, right? There's just purity and eloquence and poetry to their speech. And they change because, because they're, here's a, a, you know, a quote, a man of God nearby. And, and, and Paul says, I'm so glad that you don't care about those silly things. You know, God is always nearby. And so it doesn't matter whether I'm here or not. You have this consistent obedience. And he commends them. And he says, you're obeying and you're working out your salvation. My question, therefore, for you, Christian, is are you working? Are you working in your Christian life? The Bible over and over and over again gives us commands. Work, work, work. Are you attempting great things for God? If you're not a Christian, please don't do any work. Please don't hear me. I'm not commanding you to work. I'm commanding you to surrender, submit. But for those who are Christian, are we working? You will not be sanctified by spending all your free time in front of the television the computer screen. That will not make you like Jesus. That will not grow you in your sanctification. We need to work. And when pastors start talking about work, I know there's this instinct that people say, that's legalism. No, it's not, lazy Christian. It is the outplay, it's the outworking of your pursuit of Christ. Work! Do hard work for Jesus. You know, isn't it interesting that God doesn't make us instantly holy? He doesn't save us and all all of a sudden we have no temptation to sin. We are perfectly righteous like Jesus. He does not. Evidently, it is not God's will that you become instantly holy. One day it will be when he glorifies you. But I think God wants to see you on a thousand different battlefields battling lust and greed. Battling uh, pride and fear. I think he wants to see you on a thousand different work sites, building up compassion and grace, love and mercy. I would encourage you to attempt great things for God. 
Maybe in your devotional time. Maybe you could attempt to pray longer, pray more passionately. Maybe you could attempt to begin to play through our new pictorial directory. This once a month you pray the scripture you read that morning for your fellow church members. Maybe you could attempt great things for God in your Christ-like character. Maybe there's a sin that you can identify. Maybe God will let you know that sin even now. And you can say, God, I'm sick of playing with this thing. And I'm going to battle it. And I'm going to defeat it by your power. And I'm going to attempt great things. Growing in patience. Ending gossip. Conquering greed. And I wonder if we could attempt great things in our family life. Fathers can begin to find delight in leading their home. And bringing them before the word of God. And praying for their children. Or. Children can attempt great things by honoring their mother and their father, as Scripture tells them. Or we can attempt great things in church life. Maybe, maybe you need to start discipling someone. Maybe you need to wrap your arm around someone and say, listen, can, how about we meet for the next three months and we could just go through, I don't know, the book of Ephesians together and we'll pray for each other. Let's just develop that relationship. Attempt great things for God. Work out your salvation, he says, as God works in you. And so... Consider lastly with me. God's work in you is found in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't it wonderful that when God says, I want you to work out your salvation, he therefore is not standing back with his arms folded. He is not saying, listen, I have done enough already. Right? It's about time that you kind of shouldered some of the work. No, he's not far and aloof. You are not simply trying to please an aloof father, trying to win his smile. You could only, in fact, work out your salvation when God is working in you. Right? Just as he who, who, who may, declared you holy, he is making you holy. He is working not by you or alongside you or around you, though he is. But he is working in you to do two things. One, God is working in you to will. See that in verse 13? For God, it is God who works in you both to will. He's working in your will, your preferences, your heart, your desires, your appetites, what you seek. God is changing your will, Christian. He, he is making you more willing, if you will. And I know when we say things like this, it's a front to some Christians. Because we in, in the American Christian church have so emphasized free will to the point that we argue God will never get involved in my will. He will never impact my will. Uh, my will is free, we say. It is free from any influence or compulsion or, or uh, a weight or direction upon it and that the, our free will is kind of like the holy of holies in which God cannot go. And God would like this to happen and that to happen or that thing over there to happen, but we're just not willing and so what can he do? Poor God can't do anything about it because we don't have the will to actually do what he wants us to do. Well, I would challenge you if that's what you think with the scripture here. It says God works in you to will. He changes your will. Your will is not free from God's influence. And I praise the Lord for that. I was willing to go to hell. I was willing to disobey him in every way I thought possible. He changed my heart. In fact, it's not only this passage that declares that. It's over and over again in Scripture. Notice Psalm 119. I believe it will be on the screen. He, Psalmist prays, incline my heart to your testimonies. You see what he's saying? I, I don't love your word, God. I don't love it. I find it boring. I find it cumbersome. Change my heart. Change my will. Or Psalm 141. 
Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds. God, I'm inclined to sin. I'm inclined to go to temptation. My heart will lead me away from you. Don't let it happen. Change my will. Change my appetites, my preferences, my desires, my longings. Or 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. God, make me loving. I don't love you like I ought to. Change me. And he does this work. He changes our wills. By the way, this doesn't mean we're just passive. We just sit in the pew or sit in the chair and let God just float down the change from heaven. You notice all these verses, they're praying for it. They're asking for it. God, do this work. They're calling for it. You ought to pray. You ought to wake up in the morning and say, God, I want to follow you today. But I know my heart and I am easily tempted. Will you please hold my heart firm? Will you please bind it to you? I'm a prone to wander, Lord, I feel a prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He works in our will. But he not only works in our will, he works in us to do. He works in our obedience and our actions. He empowers your obedience. And you need this strength. You need this power because this journey is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It is a day after day battle with sin. And sometimes it gets weary and long and cumbersome. But God will never let you give up. He is working, Christian, in you to do. He will give you energy to work out your salvation. He said through the prophet Isaiah in verse 29, chapter 40, verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. He gives you strength when you have no strength. He gives you energy when you are feeling faint. And so I encourage you to get up. It is a new day. God is working in your life, Christian. Let him work, pray for that, call for that, fight. Because God is working in you. Fight against sin. Work out your salvation knowing that God is at work. He's doing that work. And we think about today's Mother's Day. And, we, and, and mothers, you think about how you attempted to raise your children. And you wanted to raise your children to love Jesus and to follow Jesus and to find their delight in Jesus. And you disciplined towards that end. And you rewarded and you loved and you encouraged towards that end. You did all of that. And it's wonderful. And we're called to do that. But sometimes that's not enough, is it? We can't actually get inside our children. We can't change them. God can. And God does. This is the work that God does. Begin your day saying, God, I need you. I need you today. Work in me. Strengthen me. Work through me. He works in you to will and to work. Ezekiel captured both these ideas in this wonderful passage in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Right? He's going to change us from the inside. I will remove the heart of stone and, your, and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I'm going to change your will. I'm going to change what you want and what's going to happen and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see the outworking of that will change that God puts in us. Where there's an obedience that, that comes out of us. God is going to work and cause us even, the Bible says, to follow him and to obey him. So what does that mean then? If God's going to do all this, should I just sit back and just let him do it? Is there any role for me? Well, notice, notice the effect of God's work. Look in the very beginning of verse 13. He says, for, right? Since, because. Work out your salvation because God is working in you to will and do. 
In other words, because God's working in you, you don't make you passive. It, God's sovereignty actually energizes human responsibility, actually causes you to labor hard. You work because he is working in you. There, there are evidently two workers, but one is totally dependent upon the other, right? We are totally dependent upon God. And I love the pictures that Jesus, I think, gives us of this in the Gospels. There's a place in John chapter 5 when Jesus walks up to a man, and he's, a, he's an invalid. Uh, he had, hasn't walked in 38 years. And he's there by a pool. And he, along with some other people, has this crazy superstition. And whenever this pool gets stirred, the first person into that pool is going to get healed. Well, if that's the case, he's at an incredible disadvantage because he can't walk. It's hard to win a race when you can't walk. Right? And here he is for 38 years just wanting to get into that pool. When Jesus shows up and begins to ask him, talk to him, what's going on? Why are you here? What's happened to you? He says, well, I, I've been an invalid for 38 years. I can't walk. You know what Jesus says to him once he says that? He says, get up. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Well, how can he walk? He hasn't walked for 38 years. How can he do that? Well, through the power that Christ has enabled him. Now, my question for you is, is his work important? Must he work? Yes. He would never walk unless he walked, right? He would never get up unless he get up. God didn't pick him up and put him on his feet. He said, obey me. Or there's Matthew 12. There's a man with a withered hand. Right? He has a withered hand. And he can't use his hands. His hand all shriveled. It's a stub. It's useless. It's a shame to him. Jesus comes to him and talks to him. And, he, and this man clearly wants his hand healed. And Jesus doesn't heal his hand. And his hand's normal. You know what Jesus says to the man with a withered hand? He says, stretch out your hand. <laughs> well, how can he do that if it's withered? Well, because God is going to enable him. And so he hears the command of God and he knows that God is working in him. And what does he do? He obeys. He stretches out his hand. You see, his work is important. It's energized by the work of Christ in him. Let me give you some more, uh, some examples in Paul's life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. So Paul says, I was a scoundrel. I was killing Christians. But now by God's grace, I'm an apostle. God has worked in me in this way. He has made me an apostle. So does that make Paul passive? That God has done this? Does he just sit back and let God do his thing? Well, read on. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. He's working, isn't he? Harder than any but then you finish it. No, it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Right? It's God's, it's like a grace sandwich, isn't it? It's like grace in the beginning and grace in the end, and there's Paul in the middle. And Paul says, I'm working my tail off, but I want you to understand the whole reason I could do that is because God is working in me. And so I get the joy of service, but God gets the glory for all that he is doing in my life. Or check out Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's working, right? He's proclaiming. He's admonishing. He's teaching. He goes on, verse 29, For this I toil, struggling. He says, I'm working. I'm laboring. I'm toiling. How? How are you doing this? With all His energy that powerfully works within me. I'm going to work, but God is working 
through me. I'm going to work out my salvation, but it's the strength of God in me. One more, First Peter 4. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You want to serve? You serve by the strength of God. What happens? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He's glorified in Him. In fact, He's pleased by it. You see that? The result of God's work in you at the end of verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You see that? You understand that, Christian? You can please God. Sinner, one who once rebelled against God, you can bring pleasure to heaven. You can please the holy God. Do you see this, Hamilton Baptist Church? Is this even on your radar? Are you going to wake up tomorrow and think, I want to please God today? Or will that never even occur to you? What an incredible honor and privilege it is to actually please God. The all-sufficient God of the universe is pleased when you take the energy He provides and work out your salvation. You see, there's work to be done. That's what Paul is explaining here. I want to avoid legalism in every way. Please don't misunderstand me. Your works do not earn God's favor. They do not earn um, your salvation. They do not make you uh, better in God's eyes. Yet, we at the other end must avoid lazy Christianity, which equally plagues the church. When we make no efforts in the working of our salvation, we say, I have grace, you know, so I'm just going to sit in grace for the rest of my life and maybe I'll advance a little bit, but I'm certainly not going to work hard to do so. See, the power of God is working in you for a purpose. Why is he working in you? So that you can rise up and follow Christ. So you can rise up tomorrow and go into your workplace and go into your homes and go into your schools and to go into your neighborhoods and show them what Christ is like. Not with dainty Sunday morning words, but with Christ-like holy character, transformed like Jesus. Work out your salvation. In fact, he calls us to do it with fear and trembling. We'll end here. We skipped over that, didn't we, in verse 12? Work out your own salvation, he says, with fear and trembling. What does that mean? What does it mean we're scared of God? I don't think we're not cringing like Adam hiding behind a tree in front of a holy God who's displeased with us. The Bible says in Romans 8 and verse 15, you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption of sons by which you cry, Abba, Father, right? It's not cringing from God. It's not a fear of a lost sinner before a holy God. So what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, well, I think we should be in awe of God. In fact, this phrase, fear and trembling, is actually used a number of times in the Old Testament. In, in the next verses, we'll see next week, God willing, he's going to be referring again and again to the Old Testament. He begins here in verse 12, I believe. And what, Paul, what, what God had promised over and over again in the Old Testament is that when the nations see God work through his people, the nations will be overcome with fear and trembling. So Exodus 15 says, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. So when God brings Israel into the promised land and he's working in them, the nations are going to look and there's going to be fear and trembling. Or Isaiah 19, the nations will tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts. So when people saw the work of God, they, they responded with fear and trembling. So could it be what he's saying here? Is that when you obey God, when you work out your salvation recognizing that it's God's power in you to do it, that you will respond with fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work. 
when you see sin lying dead at your feet, or you advance in Christ's likeness, your love abounds. You will not pat yourself on the back and say, well done. But you will look at your life and say, God has done this. God is working in me. Christianity now becomes a front row seat to watch the power of God at work in your life. When you have victory over suffering, He strengthens you and sustains you. You think, how did I make it through? God caused me. God enabled me. And we should be in awe of Him. You should be in awe of God when He works out your salvation, when He gives you strength. And so I leave you saying to work out your salvation. I encourage you to work out your salvation, that you would identify some area in your life in which you can attempt great things for God. And when you progress, when you move forward, know that it is God who's working in you and energizing you. And when this happens, you will be filled with awe and praise at the work of God. In fact, I think the greatest event, the greatest work of God that ought to fill us with awe and praise, that, that the work of God that ought to fill us mostly with fear and trembling is the work that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. As we see both the love of God and the weight of sin there in His death, we ought to tremble. We ought to have awe. So we're going to remember that event. We're going to do so through this Lord's Supper, this communion meal. And my hope is that it will cause you to tremble a bit as you consider the work of God on your behalf, what He has done to save you. And that knowing what He has done to save you, it will propel you forward in obedience. And so I invite you to this table, the Lord's table. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're invited to take of these elements when they come by in a moment. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We're delighted that you are here. Um, But we do ask that you would not participate in this meal. The Bible says that this is a meal for Christians only. And so we would ask that you simply just quietly and discreetly pass the plates to your neighbor um, and that you would avoid participating. Honor us if you would do that. We also know that the Bible actually encourages uh, Christians before we come to the meal that we can consider our life and let the Holy Spirit do His work in our life and confess any sin in our lives. In fact, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so I would like to give you an opportunity to examine yourself before we come to this meal. Please know that it's a meal for sinners. The Bible is not saying if you're a sinner, don't take this meal. It's saying the exact opposite. You're a sinner, therefore... Christ died for you. Rejoice in that. But it is saying that we should not come to this meal casually, but reverently and with repentance. And so why don't you pray silently as you ask God to work in your hearts?